Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book, The Cruises of the Joan. We're on part 12 and we're just about to start chapter 18. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast. Now on with the story. Chapter 18, Homeward Bound. I paid only a brief visit to Stockholm. On Monday, I went by the train to the town where I bought stores for the home passage. The return journey to Saljabadan was made by steamer, and I was glad I had taken the sound advice to remain at Saljabadan instead of going all the way to Stockholm. Those last few miles were composed of narrow and intricate lanes of water. There were many people going home from their day's work by that steamer. They lived in the numerous villas scattered along the fjord from Stockholm to Saljabadan. We glided round precipitous corners along narrow channels of water from which the garden cliffs rose straight up into the air. Tiny landing stages and piers for our steamer received each its group of homecomers, who, after looking into the open letter basket on the pier, sauntered cheerfully along flowery paths to their homes on the cliff. I watched with a dreamy pleasure and approval, and I should have liked to wander among those delightful homes and to know their owners. The sun was shining. It was early in August, everything possible in favour of delight. The journey was worth a pound, and it cost a shilling. On the third morning, after the Jones' arrival in Seljabaden, I untied the mooring ropes and pushed off for my long journey home alone. It was hot and windless till noon, and I bathed in the sunshine and drifted or rowed as I liked. If I could have arranged my own conditions, I should have sailed gently with the warm sun shining on me all day long and every day until I reached home. I should have given myself a decent fair wind during the daylight and a quiet safe anchorage for the night, and I should have repeated this daily and nightly until I got back to Erith, when other folk could have had their turn at humbugging the weather for their own convenience. The whole business would have been so simple. Fifty miles a day and this journey of well under a thousand miles might have been made cheaply, happily and healthily in a fortnight's holiday. Now what would really happen if everybody could have the weather they wanted? Of course, the weather was beyond me. I knew that, but I did consider that most of the journey could be made as a coastal trip. There were a hundred ports I could go into for the night and there was no need to attempt any silly stunt. And sleep? The one difficulty when a man is single-handed had to be provided for somehow. The most sensible plan was to bring up every night and in this way to do the thing properly. I made up my mind to do this and the decision both pleased and relieved me. Obviously too, I couldn't sail all day and all night through the Stockholm Scareguard, that maze of channels and rocks. I began well, except for the 50-mile journey in the daylight. The Joan did 15 instead of 50, and I anchored two miles below Delaro in the late afternoon. Having no dinghy, I could not go ashore, and I was quite content and quite busy and did very well without it. Cooking, eating, reading, writing and sleeping were excellent pastimes. The second day, I acted wisely. A fine breeze came up and I had gone a dozen miles and was congratulating myself that I should be able to get clear of the islands and out into the open water. There was, however, enough piping up in the wind to tell me that, plainly, sailing outside would be wet. And I don't like getting wet. If you're sailing for the day only and you're going to bring up for the night, all right. Getting wet is excellent practice for one's temper. But if you couldn't bring up and had to go on getting wet and keeping wet, perhaps for days, well, I wasn't going to do that if I could help it. 
Then again, I was not altogether satisfied with the direction of the wind. It seemed to me that there was a good chance of Sweden being a lee shore. Sweden with a hundred miles of coast made up a rocky archipelago, and my charts were useless if I had had to run for shelter amongst those islands. Run among them? Good Lord, not if I knew it. I was not going near that confounded archipelago. Kalmar should be my first stopping place. Glancing round, I saw a gale warning hoisted on one of the islands. That finished it. I put up my helm and laid for the north entrance of Nyasham. The guidebook gave the directions and said little else about the place, and this to my mind was a good sign. Nyasham turned out to be one of the many places I should like to visit again. Plenty of water, deep enough and shallow enough, perfectly sheltered and large enough for a fleet. As for beauty, there were all the ingredients thrown lavishly everywhere. If there had ever been such a thing as natural justice, Sweden would not have been given as many glorious harbours all to herself. You ought to sail up into Nyasham and then be transferred suddenly to the Thames. Ugh! Having now been for a whole two days alone, I felt particularly agreeable and inclined to talk to someone, anybody. So when a boatman came who had seen that I was without a dinghy and that the Red Ensign was showing, I quickly got chatting with him. His first question was, Have you any whiskey? but I sadly shook my head and offered him a cigar. As he held out his hand to take it, he perceived a motorboat hurrying our way, and he hastily withdrew his hand and rowed off to give way to the motorboat. It was the customs again, and as he would believe neither me nor my Swedish certificate, he had to go bumping his head and asking silly questions which it was impossible to understand. I do wish governments would put the right people into the service, most customs officers whom I have met are fierce, suspicious, or lax. The lax sort are best. The English are the fiercest, and the Swedish are the most suspicious and the best dressed. Far and away, the nicest are the Danes. I suppose they get good salaries. As for the Joan smuggling anything, what could she smuggle? If there was any quantity of alcohol or tobacco aboard, I am sure that it could be smelled. As for saccharin or cocaine, which I have a notion somebody gets run in for now and again, where can you buy them and where could you sell them? I'll bet there's not one man in a thousand knows anything about them, either chemically or commercially, and that the man who does not know gets badgered by the customs. When my enemy the customs boat had retired beaten, my friend the boatman received his cigar told me how deplorably I had wasted my opportunity by not bringing whiskey with me, and what was more to the point, he offered to take me ashore. For some unknown reason, he did not come again till next day, when I got ashore in his boat for a couple of hours. He accepted my offer to stand him a drink, and then, to my surprise, drank ginger beer. Now why on earth did he show so much interest in whiskey? Two unexpected visitors came to the Joan that night. They woke me about one o'clock in the morning by bumping their rowing boat against the yacht. I slipped off my bunk in a hurry and looked out. There were two men in a big skiff, one rowing and one sitting in the stern, both drunk in dry Sweden. Goodness knows what they intended doing or saying. I didn't mean to have any visitors drunk or sober at that time of the night and I refused their company. They soon went away, but the visit made me feel inclined to have some weapon on board in order to bring my power more nearly on a level with that of casual disturbers of my peace. A strong wind had been blowing for 24 hours of my stay in Nyasham. On the second morning, the weather cleared, and although the wind was against me, I decided to jog along. I determined, if possible, to anchor each night, but my determination went for nothing. I did not find it possible to anchor. 
During the first day out, the wind was so light and foul that I headed away from the shore and could make no anchorage. Then it blew hard, and my chief desire was to keep away from the mainland and from Gotland as well. I dreaded being on a lee shore, and a lee shore composed of rocky islets seemed the worst of lee shores. The weather was bad enough to make me put a sea anchor over the side twice during the next few days. When I hauled it up after the second bout, Visby and its cliffs were about six miles to leeward, and I breathed better when I got away. Then the wind came west, and I could not get to Kalmar. Instead, I went outside the island which forms the eastern side of Kalmar Channel, and with a fine beam wind, I bowled away almost the whole length. The wind dropped. I will go round the south corner of this island and find a little harbour. It's time I had a proper turn in instead of snatches of an hour or two at a time, I said to myself. But the wind came fair again, and I could not waste it. I went on and at last got within sight of Bornholm and Christianso. The latter is a tiny group of islands whose harbour is formed by the channel between the two largest of the little islands. I have been told that it was a magnificent place to visit, and the description in the sailing directions made me desire to go there. Having no chart of practical size, I made one for myself from the instructions in the sailing directions and determined, now that the wind was drawing ahead and freshening, to beat up to Christianso and shelter there. The place was only ten miles away. I was not to make those ten miles. The freshening wind compelled me to heave to and reef and heave to again, and I watched the light of Christianso slowly disappear as I was driven to leeward. Next day, the sea anchor went over for the third time, and I began to think I was being victimised. The boat was safe and comfortable enough lying to with the sea anchor and mizzen, if only there was sufficient sea room, but it was a doubt of that sufficiency that worried me. Although I could keep a dead reckoning, I knew that no faith could be placed on its result. The currents were variable. They might be two knots or more or less, or nothing. They might be with the wind, probably were, and then again they might not. All these instructive vagaries I gathered from the official guidebook known as the Sailing Directions. Karlskrona seemed to offer itself as a harbour of refuge, and I drew a chart from the information contained in the Sailing Directions. It was confusing. There were too many marks and lights for a stranger to remember straight off, and although the entrance was probably easy enough in fair weather, I did not like the prospect of running there for shelter in bad weather. Still, if the boat got driven that way, there might be nothing else to do but run for it. But before I cleared my sea anchor and hoisted my foresail or a trysail to run with, I desired to know exactly where I was. I did not know this, and my ignorance of this vital point made any attempt at running a silly thing to do. The wind and stream, however, did not blow me upon that shore. I had one fright during the darkness, for when I took my customary look round after a short spell of sleep, I saw a half-dozen separate lights, one big blaze of light and a sky reflection like that of a town. The hasty conclusion that it was Karl's Krona made me feel warm all over, and I then grew a little excited to think that now I really was in for it. But, pulling myself together, I watched to make sure. Before I ran, I must make quite sure that it was Karl's Krona, and I must also make quite certain of my position in relation to it. So I stayed and watched all the lights, and they gradually faded, all of them, and left me in complete and dark loneliness, with not even a reflection in the sky to remind me that Karl's Krona was somewhere near. In the morning, if I can only see anything to tell me where I am, I'll run up Kalmar Sound and see my friends in Kalmar again. This was another wise resolution. 
The morning, however, brought no means of certifying my position. I must rely on a DR position if I chose to sail anywhere down to Leward, and I refused. During the day, a clatter woke me up. The mizzen boom had snapped, and the sail was slamming about with the two broken pieces. I stowed the sail, found we were broadside on to the sea and wind, and so went forward to examine. The sea anchor warp had gone. Why or how, I do not know. The chain, shackle and thimble leading from the bows to the warp were all where they had been left, and I suppose that when the anchor disappeared, the boat swung round, brought the full force of the wind upon the mizzen sail, and then the boom snapped. It was a thin, weak spar which used to bend even when we were ahead to the wind. For the next two days, the Joan did as she pleased or as the wind and the waves pleased. Perhaps it was a compromise. She rolled and pitched, poked up to windward and wore off till her quarter received the breaking waves. Eight points, she sheared, and took every wave that came without alarming the crew of one. Of course, it was wet, spray and breaking wave tops forever blowing over, but no weight of water came aboard. My DR positions began to make a long line up the chart. They were taking me into the middle of the Baltic. But where I was really, I gave up guessing. I had no means of telling. After four days, currents could easily be held responsible for a hundred miles, and I therefore decided that my DR might be right, or that the true position might be within a hundred miles of it, or might be further off and in any direction. And that information was worth having. The Baltic was not 200 miles wide, so that I might expect to see land at any time, and it was going to be a real lee shore this time. Here had the gale been blowing for four days on end, and if it could do that, why should it ever stop? I grew sick and tired of the business. If only it had been in the ocean a thousand miles from land, it would have been all right and very acceptable. I could have had a good long rest and thoroughly enjoyed myself, but here it was one long nightmare of worry. If only I had known just where I was. Yes, if only. I put up the trysail, and she lay steadier, was happier to live upon, and made a different track upon my chart. The weather was, if anything, worse than before. It was Friday night when I lost sight of Christianso, and on the following Thursday morning I saw land again, perhaps twenty miles to leeward, and it made me jump to see it. I had no desire to see any land there while this weather lasted. Now indeed I was driving down upon a lee shore, and what that shore was, I wanted very much to know. It might easily be anywhere from Riga to Cape Arcona, a stretch of 300 miles or so, and how was I to find out? The sailing directions were at present useless, for nothing distinctive could be made out except that the land was high, and that it lay for many miles across the direction in which I was driving. Again I assured myself it would be fatal to run until I knew where to run, until noon came, there was nothing to do but eat and sleep, and I recognised that it might be important to do as much of both as I could, so I ate and slept. Luck favoured me towards noon in three ways. First, the sun came out. Second, I discovered an error of one day in my record of the date. This I corrected. Third, I found another error in my estimated time for taking the altitude, I did not know now how near my watch was to Greenwich time within several minutes, so that a sight for longitude was useless to waste any thought on, but it would give me information enough not to be taking an altitude an hour too soon or too late. Mistakes are so easy to make, and I made a bad one, calculated when I ought to begin taking the sight, and later found it would be an hour after noon. I shall never forget the struggle to get that altitude, Getting from the cabin to the shrouds with the sextant safe was ten minutes' arduous work, 
and the violent motion of the boat, the incessant cutting out of the horizon by the waves were the causes of another ten-minute struggle before I could be satisfied with the result. But in the end, I was satisfied with it, and was convinced that it was as correct an angle as it was possible to get. I knew the latitude would be within half a dozen miles of the true one, and that was sufficient for me. It came to 58 degrees 8 minutes, and showed that my DR was very close to the true position, so far as latitude was concerned. But could I conclude from that result that my longitude was equally correct? I could not, and I refused to be so silly as to pretend any assurance of it. In any event, the observations show me that I was approaching Danzig Bay. If it was the western end, all would be well, for I could run round into the bay, and once under the lee of the land, I could beat up to Danzig or Heller. If, however, it should turn out to be the eastern end, it was an entirely different affair, because then it meant running for Mamel, and I hated the thought of that run. The chances would be against me. Once the course was laid and the run started, there would be no opportunity of looking up directions. These I must study thoroughly beforehand from the printed book, for I had no chart of this coast on a scale big enough to be of use. Missing the port meant destruction. I had no doubt that I could get my mainsail up to make the beat, but I was certain that a small boat could not beat off a lee shore in a gale. I am still certain of it, and I do not want to try it. So I watched the coast as it gradually opened out and some details became plainer. I read most carefully the description of each end of Danzig Bay, but never did I become quite sure which end it was by repeated reading and looking. I had to wait until dusk came, and then I was perhaps seven miles away. Then the lighthouse flashed me the knowledge I wanted so much. I timed and counted the flashes over and over again until the knowledge was an absolute certainty, and the relief to find it was the western end, the end that meant safety for me, made me shout and shout again. It was a real luxury to put up my helm and run along that coast eastward for Danzig Bay. All worry and anxiety had vanished, and under trysail and fore the Joan romped along at her best. Having reached Rixoff Point, I came round to the starboard tack and made for Danzig Harbour. Although now under the lee of the island, the waves came in nasty little bunches of three. Short, steep waves came smacking onto the bows of the boat, leaping up in the air and smothered everything with their tops. After three blows, there would be a pause of a minute, and then another trio came along and repeated the performance. If seven is a holy number, I reckon three must be its opposite. When I at last drew near Danzig Harbour, I felt in somewhat of a quandary. Would it be advisable to take a pilot, or should I attempt the entry without? I'd never taken a pilot anywhere before. I don't remember ever being asked to take one. Here I was influenced by four considerations. My recent experiences had inclined me to get into a harbour as quickly, safely, and even luxuriously as possible. I knew nothing whatever of Danzig except the description in the sailing directions, and everyone knows the kind of encouragement they offer. I had no chart of any kind, and lastly, the sailing directions had one wonderfully good thing to say of Danzig, and that was that pilotage was given free. This finally decided me. I settled in my mind to have a free pilot. The pilot boat was steaming slowly about, and I made what signals I could to tell them to give me a free pilot. My only signals were flying the red ensign and shouting at them when I came near enough that I was in need of a pilot. After a great deal of shouting and gesticulation, they lowered a boat with a pilot and two boatmen in it. Unfortunately, they insisted on rowing slap bang for the Joan. 
After a little confusion, I shut up alongside them and hove to. They couldn't have had the smallest knowledge of small sailing boats, for while I hauled the headsails to weather and ran off the main sheet in the expectation that they would grab the gunwale, sling in their pilot and get away, they just shipped their oars and waited. By the time I had got the boat nicely hove to, their boat was several yards behind me, and I had to perform the manoeuvre again. It failed a second time, but on the third occasion I grabbed their boat myself and held it long enough for the pilot to scramble aboard. He took the helm and I stowed the foresail. As we approached the entrance, a small steamer came out with a pilot aboard. He caught sight of his pal on my boat and burst into roars of laughter. My pilot laughed back, but in a sheepish kind of way. He was evidently half ashamed of the job. He brought me alongside a quay in the river just a few hundred yards within the entrance. The entrance, by the way, presented no difficulty whatever. You just sailed straight in. I went ashore and signed a form or two and the customs man came aboard and chatted for a minute or two. Then my pilot left me and I took on another man who offered to take me to the yacht basin. That again was easy to find when you knew where it was. He piloted me there and introduced me to its guardian. They tied the Joan to a homemade landing stage and left me to myself and liberty. It was a delightful place. A little whitewashed castle stood at the riverbank, and a wide moat led from the river round three sides to the river again, and in this moat all the yachts of Danzig stayed, a hundred or so. Calm, still, clear fresh water, a big old German cottage stood close by. The yacht guardian lived in it with his large family, and I got them to give me my meals while I stayed there. What a striking contrast it was to come from driving unwillingly across the Baltic to this peaceful castle moat. Three days passed and I was able to get everything in apple pie order once more. I paid a visit to Danzig and one or two places in its neighbourhood and everything was strange enough to be interesting. I mean to visit Danzig again some day. Well that's the end of today's reading, I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner where for $5 a month you can help support this podcast If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.